I'd like to wish everybody a happy Resurrection Day. Uh, if it wasn't for the bodily resurrection of Jesus, we wouldn't be here today. So now we've got uh, handouts over there if you want them, but you don't have to look at them because everything will be on the screen with the PowerPoints. So, uh, but if you want the handouts when you leave, and then you can go over the passages and the things we talked about, that would be great. And uh, if you want to, if you're old school like me and you want to turn the pages of the Bible rather than look at the screen, then just open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking at the famous resurrection chapter. We'll be looking at a few passages from there. And um, and as you do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer one, one more time that, you know, he anoints me to preach his word. Uh, keep in mind, God's word is perfect. Uh, the guy who's preaching God's word is not. And um, so it's a, it's a fearful thing. It's a, it's a thing that makes me tremble to proclaim his truth. And I pray that I not get in the way. So let's, uh, let's join in a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, uh, we thank you for sending your son, God the son, to become a man and to die on the cross for our sins, to take our punishment for us. And then we thank you for raising him from the dead and defeating man's greatest enemy, death by raising your son from the dead. And we look for the day when your son, King Jesus, returns in power and glory to take his stand upon the earth to make things right. In the meantime, you've called us to proclaim your truth. And so I pray that your truth would be proclaimed today, that it would not be the faulty wisdom of man, the lies of man, I pray, Lord, that uh, you would cancel the man and you would anoint me with your spirit so that I could proclaim your truth without leading anyone astray. I pray, Lord, you'd open hearts and minds, including my own, to receive truth from your word. And I pray that your spirit empowers us to apply these truths to our lives so we could be all that you called us to be until that day when your son returns. May we go throughout the day, Lord, throughout the, the years and the decades and throughout our lives, remembering that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Well, God created us perfect. And he put us in the garden, but then we sinned, we rebelled. And since then, death has reigned upon the earth. Humanity is cursed with death. Death, according to the Bible, death is man's greatest enemy. But eventually, in the fullness of time, God the Son became a man and died on the cross for our sins. Now, he did this out of his love for us, and so death reigned until love broke through. Love broke through and the tomb was empty. Love broke through and the stone was rolled away. Love broke through and the risen Savior appeared 
Love broke through and death, man's greatest enemy, was defeated. And so now we celebrate the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I hope you don't do it just once a year. We ought to celebrate the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the one who has defeated death, the one who has conquered death. We ought to celebrate that every day, forever and ever. But now we celebrate the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the day when Jesus rose from the dead. That was the day death died. The day Jesus conquered the grave, the day love broke through. Now we might be asking, well, we believe that Jesus conquered death, so we have hope. But some would say, some would scoff and say, no, I don't believe that. I think you're believing a myth or a fairy tale. I don't believe that Jesus rose. And so if you're a believer out there, what I want to do is just confirm your faith in Christ and show that it is a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth not only died on the cross for our sins, but bodily rose from the dead. Those who reject Christ's resurrection, they change the rules and the principles of history to ignore that fact. Because if you believe he rose, everything changes. If you believe he rose, you're not, you're not king. He is. For those who believe and are here, I'm hoping you'll examine the evidence with me today and see that Jesus of Nazareth did indeed bodily rise from the dead, proving his claims to be God, Savior, and Messiah. So I want to answer that question today, did Jesus rise from the dead? I want to look at a quote from Blaise Pascal. Uh, if we look at Blaise Pascal's mug there, he was a brilliant thinker, wasn't the best-looking guy in the world. Uh, but Blaise Pascal, a Frenchman, his work called Ponce's Thoughts. It was his, he was writing a defense of the faith, and he had all these notes, and he died at the age of 39. So they kind of put the notes together. And, uh, but here's one, say number 434, here's one I want us to look at. Blaise Pascal says this, Imagine a number of men in chains, all under sentence of death, some of whom are each day butchered in the sight of the others. Those remaining see their own condition and that of their fellows, and looking at each other with grief and despair, await their turn. This is an image of the human condition. And so what Blaise Pascal is telling us is we attend enough funerals and memorials to where we reach a point in life, we realize, hey, one day it's going to be my funeral. One day it's going to be my memorial. Man is mortal. And Blaise Pascal says, look, he was a brilliant mathematician, a brilliant scientist. If he lived to be 89, we'd probably be having this sermon on Mars right now. The guy, the dude was that smart. And, uh, but he says, until you have hope that man's greatest enemy, death, has been defeated, you're wasting your life just going on with things. You've got to look for deliverance. Well, most of us, he said, we, we get into diversions. We divert our attention. Back then, he said, we go dancing. Today, it would be 
computer games or the internet, social media, television, whatever it may be. We divert our attention from the most important things. And one of the most important things is our greatest enemy, death. And so he said the wise man's going to look for deliverance. That's why Blaise Pascal says only two kinds of people that can be wise. Those who seek God with all their hearts because they don't know him. In other words, because of death, you ought to be looking for deliverance and hope it's there. So the only two kinds of people can be called wise, those who seek God with all their hearts because they don't know him, and those who serve God with all their hearts because they do know him. Everybody here, we fit in one of those categories. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you trusted in him alone for salvation, then the rational thing to do would be to dedicate your life to him and serve him all the days of your life. If you don't know him, you ought to be seeking. And if you're seeking right now, you know, if you're a non-believer and you're here today, I'm thinking you're seeking. I don't know why you'd come to hear some half Portuguese, half Italian guy from Jersey with a gravelly voice unless you were looking for answers. And uh, I'm not the guy with the answers until I found the book, the Word of God, and that's where the answers are. And uh, But the fact of the matter is, unless, death, unless we have deliverance from death, life is a waste of time. Now, uh, let me just show you how important the resurrection is. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 14, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Okay, he says in verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. And then Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, because Jesus rose from the dead, will be raised from the dead. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we won't be raised from the dead. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, the last sentence of that verse, if the dead do not rise, if Jesus didn't rise, the dead are not going to rise. If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so Paul says, look, if, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is a waste of time. You're wasting your time right now. Okay? You know, Buddhism goes on without a resurrection of Buddha. No deliverance of death there. Islam goes on without a resurrection of Muhammad. But Christianity stands or falls based upon whether or not Jesus of Nazareth bodily rose from the dead and conquered man's greatest enemy, death. Now, I'm sure you've been at memorials or funerals for your loved ones. My parents, their funerals come to mind. If that's all there is, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the dead stayed and human history is one big cruel joke. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching and faith are futile, a waste of time. We are still in our sins. And Paul says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay? Just the fact that death is man's greatest enemy and the fact that Jesus claims to have conquered death through his bodily resurrection shows me 
that everybody who gets up in the morning and brushes their teeth and puts on some clothes and goes out to live their lives, they're actually living as if there's hope. In other words, they're actually living like death has been defeated. They're actually living like Jesus of Nazareth really did conquer death by rising from the dead. But if Jesus did not rise, then human history is one cruel joke. Okay? Guys and gals come into existence, live 70, 80, 90 years, and then go out of existence. It doesn't matter if you accomplish great things or you accomplish very little, it's all destroyed. And eventually the whole universe is just going to blow up. The death of the universe, the universe will be in debris, no usable energy. And in human history, if Jesus did not rise, human history is one cruel joke. In the end, death wins. But if Jesus of Nazareth really did bodily rise from the dead, then death has been defeated. And so we're going to answer this question today. Did Jesus rise? What is at stake? If Jesus bodily rose from the dead, he is who he claimed to be. He is God, God the Son become a man. He is Savior. Salvation is only through him. I'm praying if you, if you came here today not trusting in Jesus for salvation, I'm praying that before you leave, you put your trust, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You depend on him to save you, not yourself. If Jesus bodily rose from the dead, he is who he claimed to be. He is God. He is Savior. He is the only Savior. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is God. He is Savior. And he is the ultimate Jewish king, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the one who will rescue Israel in the last days. And so Jesus, if he rose from the dead, he's who he claimed to be. He's God, Savior, Messiah. If he rose from the dead, he has conquered death. And if he rose from the dead, love broke through. And so we're going to look right now at an ancient creed found that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. He's writing this 5 AD to the Corinthians, a church that he founded in 51 AD. Keep in mind, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified about 33 AD. But he quotes an ancient creed that he had to translate from the Hebrew of his day into the Greek. It reads real choppy in the Hebrew. I mean, the Greek reads like a poem in Hebrew or Aramaic. Okay? And so he quotes this ancient creed that most scholars, even scholars who tried to deny the resurrection, acknowledge that this creed was formulated just a few years after uh, Jesus' death. In fact, Marcus Borg, the late Marcus Borg and the late uh, Gerd Ludmann of uh, the Jesus Seminar, those guys were very, they dedicated their lives to attacking Christianity. They believe this creed was formed within one year of the crucifixion. So the idea that, that the resurrection is a legend that took decades to develop is baloney. This is an ancient creed that goes back to the earliest days of Christianity, okay? Um, and so what does this ancient creed say? Paul quotes it. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That's the official 
language of a rabbi passing on to his disciples what he received. For I delivered you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The Old Testament predicted it. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And then he adds to the creed, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. What he's saying is, if you don't believe me that Jesus of Nazareth died, was buried, rose from the dead, appeared to many people, you don't believe me, talk to the witnesses, most of them are still alive. Okay? So he adds that to the creed, then he gets back to the creed, then he appeared to James, that's the half-brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles. Then Paul adds again to this ancient creed his own post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. And last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Okay, He's, he, said, he said, I'm like a baby that's born in the 11th month. Baby's supposed to be born in the 9th month. All the other post-resurrection appearances of Jesus were before Jesus ascended to heaven. Paul's was about a year later. Okay, and, um, and there he was commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So what we're going to look at right now, the core historical facts. Core historical facts that are accepted by virtually all the world's leading New Testament scholars. The New Testament scholars are actually New Testament critics. They criticize the New Testament. They're living to criticize the New Testament. Now, some of them believe, but most of them we would not classify as traditional Bible-believing Christians. Some of them are agnostics or atheists like uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, writes a lot of books attacking Christianity. This is based upon the research of my old professor, Dr. Gary Habermas of Liberty University, probably the world's leading resurrection evidence scholar. And uh, he's looked at pretty much everything in print in... Uh, French, English, and German put out by the world's leading New Testament scholars for the last 25 or 30 years, okay? And, uh, and when he's looked at it, he's found that virtually all the scholars accept certain data from the New Testament as historical fact. And when you look at these historical facts, the best explanation and that's how you determine history. You look at the historical data, and then you try to come up with the best explanation. And he argues when you look at the data that the New Testament scholars, the critics, will give you, you look at that data, and the best explanation is that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, fact number one, death by crucifixion. Now you ask, well, how is that evidence for the resurrection? Well, before a guy can claim to be risen from the dead, he's got to die, okay? You can't be raised from the dead unless you die. And there's some people out there that, that hold to the swoon theory that Jesus only passed out on the cross. Somehow he's revived in the tomb and in his weakened state. You want to see what the sufferings of Christ was like? The closest depiction of that is Mel Gibson's The Passion. That's the closest depiction 
of the sufferings that Christ went through. If you had a weak, sto weak stomach, don't watch that movie, okay? And, uh, but the idea that he was revived in the tomb after the Roman scourging and then crucifixion and he only passed out on the cross is, uh, it just does not hold water. Theologians have a, a word for that. They call it baloney. Um, uh, but in John 19.34, chapter 19, verse 34, it talked about to confirm that Jesus was dead, his side was pierced, and what flowed out was blood and water. Okay? The Journal of the American Medical Association in the late 1800s, then they repeated their study in the late 1900s, found out that only happens when you pierce the side of a corpse. Because the person is still alive, the heart pumps, and that blood mixes with this transparent, watery-like liquid in the pericardium, and it blends it instantaneously. So you puncture the side of somebody who's alive, and it's either going to squirt or pour out blood. But if you get a gentle flow of the blood and the water, the transparent, liquidy substance from the uh, pericardium, that only occurs if the person is already dead. And so the Journal of Amer the American Medical Association acknowledges that Jesus of Nazareth was dead before he was taken down from the cross, and that refutes the swoon theory. Fact number two, the Apostle Paul's transformed life. Remember, he was Saul of Tarsus. He had been the leading persecutor of the church. He was on the road to Damascus to try to kill Christians, okay, because he believed as as an Orthodox Jew, he believed the Old Testament was all about the law and technicalities and man trying to obey God through the all the technicalities, the rules and regulations of the Old Testament. When Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he realized, okay, I got the, he probably had the Old Testament memorized, but he was misinterpreting it. Instead of interpreting the Old Testament in a, a legalistic manner, looking for rules and regulations, instead of being law-centered, he became Christ-centered in his interpretation of the Old Testament. And he saw that the law and the animal sacrifices pointed to Jesus. The bloodshed of animals never took away sins, but it pointed forward to the day when the ultimately worthy Lamb of God would come, who would take away the sins of the world. But here's this guy, the leading persecutor of the church. He claimed Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and his life was radically changed. All of a sudden, he became the leading missionary and the leading theologian of the early church. He suffered tremendous persecution, okay? Uh, he was beaten with rods numerous times, scourged numerous times, shipwrecked numerous times, and eventually he was beheaded. He was put to death for preaching the gospel. What changed his life? He claimed that he had seen the risen Christ. And that changed his life. Uh, I was supposed to debate Marcus Borg at Oregon State University back in, I think, in the early 2000s, and uh, he never really accepted the debate, so I showed up and spoke unopposed. But my whole thing, I'm just going to tell everybody, look, we both agree, me and Marcus Borg, one of the leading anti-Christian scholars on the planet Earth, we both agree that 
Saul of Tarsus, who we now know of as the Apostle Paul, had this experience and that Paul interpreted that experience the way the apostles interpreted their experiences, he interpreted in such a way that he believed he saw Jesus alive after his death. Marcus Borg, on the other hand, says, well, uh, Paul had that experience, but he misinterpreted it. Now, Borg's talking 2,000 years later. I'm not impressed by all the letters after his name. Comes on a scene 2,000 years later. So, yeah, he had that experience, and it totally transformed his life. The persecutor of the church, the greatest persecutor, became the greatest preacher of the church. But I think he misinterpreted it. Uh, definitely saw something, says Marcus Borg. We don't know what it is, but it wasn't a risen Christ. So I was just going to basically say, hey, I'm going to leave you with that choice. Paul had the experience, and he said he believed he saw the risen Christ who commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Marcus Borg comes on a scene 2,000 years later and says Paul got it wrong. What he actually saw was this. I said, look, as for me and my house, we're going to say Paul. Okay, let God be true and every man a liar. And so, Paul, what transformed Paul's life? If it, it was an experience in which he saw the risen Christ, so if he didn't see the risen Christ, what did he see? So what you, what you have is most New Testament scholars today saying, well, all the evidence seems to point to the resurrection, but we don't believe in miracles. We don't believe in the resurrection. Well, what happened? And they say, well, we don't know. And they just leave it at that. Fact number three, James's transformed life. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He mocked his brother during Jesus' earthly ministry. The, the sibling rivalry was probably off the charts there, okay? I mean, can you imagine? No matter, James had a reputation. They used to call him James the Just. I don't think anybody's going to ever say, there's Phil the Just. That dude is so just. Let's call him Phil the Just. They said that James, early church, said that James had knees that looked like a camel's knees because he spent so much time on hard ground praying. Okay? They called him James the Just. But you realize, no matter how good he was, Mary and Joseph probably constantly told him, why can't you be more like your big brother Jesus? Now, And James was not a believer back then. He used to mock his brother when his brother claimed to be the Messiah. So he couldn't even say, Mom, Dad, come on. That's too high of a bar. My brother's God. Okay? He didn't even have that option. So that sibling, sibling rivalry, rivalry just heated up heated up, and he mocked his brother. And then James, he's got a big name in the Jewish religious community as a holy man, a man who obeys God's laws. And then Jesus dies the most shameful way possible, nailed to a tree naked by the pagan Romans. And James and his family, they're patriotic Jews. And James is probably alone in a room just thinking, man, I'm toast in the Jewish religious community. My big brother brought us shame and died in the most shameful way possible. What changed him? Because just within 40 days of uh, Jesus' uh, uh, crucifixion, James is actually one of the key leaders in the early church. How did he go from mocker to leader 
in such a small amount of time. That creed tells us his big brother appeared alive to him. And James probably took one look and said, Jesus, I apologize, man. Okay, I totally apologize. I'm going to rethink everything. What caused the transformation of Saul's life, the transformation of James's life? If it's not the bodily resurrection of Jesus, I don't know what it would be. And then you have the transformed fact number four, the transformed life of the other apostles, Peter and the other apostles. Uh, the, these guys were hiding under beds. We, 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 we get disappointed at Peter because he went into the high priest's courtyard, lost courage and faith, and denied Jesus three times. Hey, the, where are the other? The other guys were all hiding under beds. Except for the teenager John, he went all the way to the cross with Jesus. Okay? I, I, I can honestly say that Phil Fernandez, Joe and Angie's little boy, would never have denied Jesus three times on that night. Okay? But I'm not bragging because I'd be hiding under the bed with the other guys. But still, Peter denied Jesus three times. The other apostles hid under beds. Then all of a sudden, somehow, some way, their lives get transformed, and these cowards become courageous defenders of the faith. They preach Jesus to the point of suffering and persecution, and most, if not all of them, died martyrs' deaths. They were put to death for their faith in the risen Lord, okay? Um, this refutes the stolen body theory because men do not die for what they know to be a hoax. These guys were not lying. They were sincere in their belief that Jesus rose from the dead, that they were willing to die uh, for that belief. Some would say, well, maybe they were deceived. Maybe they saw hallucinations. No, uh, modern psychology has proven no two people share the same hallucination, just like no two people share the same dream. And yet Jesus appeared to groups. It's easy to talk people out of hallucinations, out of their belief in hallucinations. We know that because Navy SEALs hallucinate all the time during Hell Week. They're training. They train, though they sleep deprive them, food deprive them. And there was one report of one guy sitting down on a boat swinging a paddle. His instructor said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hit the dolphins that are jumping over the boat. The instructor said, there's no dolphins jumping over the boat. He said, there's not? No. He said, okay, he put the paddle down. Does that sound like the apostles? You hallucinated guys. He really didn't rise from the dead. You really didn't see him risen from the dead. Okay, stop preaching then. They were sincere enough in their belief that they knew they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Men don't die for what they know to be a hoax, and they were not hallucinating. They couldn't talk them out of it. Why would these guys be willing to be crucified, to be stoned to death? I mean, James, the half-brother of Jesus, they took him to the top of the temple and told him, tell people to stop worshiping your brother. So he starts preaching Jesus preaching the gospel. So they threw him off the temple. They looked down. Oh, no, the dude's still alive. He's, he's all broken up, but he's on the ground still preaching. So they try to stone him to death, and he's still preaching. In fact, he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was quoting his big brother from the cross. And finally, a guy took a club in 62 AD and bashed his head in. Okay? That's not the last we heard of James, by the way. You read the book of James, 
It's the guy that wrote it. How did they change? How did these guys go from persecutors of the church or mockers of the church or just plain cowards to courageous men who are willing to proclaim Jesus even to the point of death? They claimed it was because they saw Jesus risen from the dead. You could throw me the wild beast, and the wild beast could tear me apart. But I know my Savior is risen from the dead. And so you can kill me. You can kill my body, but I'll go with my spirit. I'll live with Jesus until that day he returns, and then I'll get my resurrection body. And so the apostles form life. And number five, the empty tomb. Whereas 97 to 99% of New Testament critics will give you the first four points, point number five, it's only 75% of new scholars acknowledge the empty tomb. That's pretty good, though. When you got guys who aren't believers and 75% of them, they dedicate their life to studying the New Testament, they say, oh, yeah, the tomb was empty, okay? So with 75%, we could still make a strong circumstantial case that the tomb was empty. Evidence for the empty tomb? The first witnesses of the empty tomb, and Christ's appearance for that matter, were women. Well, why would that be evidence? Well, this was at a time uh, when society, both Jew and Gentile, were male chauvinist, very chauvinistic. A lady's testimony was not even allowed in a court of law. There were two exceptions. I don't want to get into that, you know, but whatever the case, a woman's testimony was not allowed in a court of law. In fact, if a lady said something that was kind of hard to believe, you just chalked it up as woman's tales. In fact, Peter and John, you know, if you're going to make this stuff up, you're going to want Peter and John to be the first witnesses. Instead, Peter and John are what? The first fools, because they didn't believe the ladies. Ah, that's just woman's talk. No, I don't believe it. Then they went to the tomb. Of course, John ran faster than Peter. Peter was a big offensive lineman. John was like a guy who run kickoffs back. And so John beat him to the tomb, and they looked at the tomb, and all that was left was the grave clothes. And we might still have part of those grave clothes. We'll talk about that a little later. Now, why would you, if Peter and John are trying to start a new religious movement, why would you add that, say that the first witnesses were women? Why would you talk about that if a woman's testimony? was not even respected back then. And why would you have the two key guys in the early church to be refuted, proven wrong, by ladies? That's horrible public relations. That's what scholars call the principle of embarrassment. If you give embarrassing details, it's probably the truth. Okay? And, um, and, so, and then Jesus being buried in Joseph Arimathea's tomb. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. There's only 70 of them. So they didn't make up his name. That would have been too easy to refute. There's no guy named Joseph Arimathea on the Sanhedrin. That would have been too easy to refute. So there was a guy named Joseph Arimathea. But then you could say, yeah, maybe there was, but I don't think he gave his tomb for Jesus to be buried in. Well, wait a minute. There's only 70 of them. The resurrection is being preached in Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin meets. You could just walk up to the guy. Did you or did you not give your tomb for Jesus to be buried in? And that's why, uh, that's why most scholars acknowledge today, yeah, Jesus was probably buried in Joseph Arimathea's tomb. 
Then you have the resurrection preached in Jerusalem in the early 30s A.D. That's the easiest place on earth to disprove the resurrection. You want to disprove a resurrection? Just produce the uh, rotting corpse. Uh, No body was produced by the Jewish leaders. Why? Because the tomb was empty. The earliest sermons, Acts 1 through 12, the theology is very primitive and undeveloped, so scholars acknowledge, even critical scholars, even non-Christian scholars acknowledge that the first 12 chapters um, of Acts is the earliest preaching of the church, and guess what was being proclaimed? The resurrection. So they preached the resurrection in Jerusalem in the earliest days. The easiest place on earth to refute the resurrection claim, yet no refutation came. Fact number six, the primary worship day changed. The primary worship day of Orthodox Jews is Saturday. To this day, if a Jew does not accept Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, Saturday is still, the Sabbath is still their primary worship day. The early church was made up of Orthodox Jews. Why did they change the primary worship day from Saturday to Sunday? And they called Sunday the Lord's Day. Okay? Now, keep in mind, the Sabbath day was instituted by God in the Ten Commandments. And it was to celebrate God's work of creation. God created the universe in six days and then rested on the seventh day. Therefore, man should work six days and rest on the seventh day. So for Orthodox Jews to change the primary day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, an event as big or bigger than creation had to occur in human history for them to do it. Again, talk to Orthodox Jews today who don't accept Jesus, and Saturday is still there. What event as big as or bigger than creation could that be? If it's not the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, I don't know what. Okay? And so the worship day, another fact. And as you look at these different facts, it tells us that Jesus of Nazareth bodily rose from the dead. Fact number seven, the growth of the early church. You see, here's a formula that always worked. Because the Messiah, the ultimate Jewish king, is supposed to rescue Israel from her Gentile enemies, okay? By the way, that's yet to come. That's the second coming of Christ. Just read Zechariah chapter 14, see what happens. So if you've if you got a guy and you think he's the Messiah and he dies, here's the formula. Dead Messiah equals dead Messiah movement. Okay? Even Gamaliel, who didn't wasn't a Christian, who was Paul's former teacher, even he made that clear in, in the book of Acts. I think it's Acts chapter 5. He said, he said look, uh, we, we've seen, that, let's not persecute these Christians because we've seen, he mentioned uh, a guy named Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but a guy named Judas and a guy named Thutis. Uh, just two of many guys, hundreds of guys claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, got a small following, attacked the Romans, and got obliterated. Okay? And when they died, their Messiah movement died. 
So Gamaliel says, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, his movement's going to die because dead Messiah equals dead Messiah movement. So let's give it some more time. Okay? Let's give it some more time. Uh, now that didn't help Gamaliel unless he came to Christ later. But dead Messiah equals dead Messiah movement. Did Jesus' Messiah movement die? Yes, it did. That Friday night when Jesus was on the cross and his apostles were hiding under beds, you got a dead Messiah and a dead Messiah movement. And then 50 days later on the Feast of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit baptizes the church, the church explodes. 3,000 get saved, and then all of a sudden, Lo and behold, in a few decades, the gospel spreads throughout the entire Roman Empire. So much so that Western civilization was transformed by the carpenter from Nazareth. Well, if dead Messiah equals dead Messiah movement, and Jesus died, and his Messiah movement died, how in the world did it come back to life? There's only one answer. That dead Messiah named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he came back to life. He rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. And once again, love broke through. Now, another possible evidence uh, is the Shroud of Turin. I don't have enough time to get into it. There you can see the image, the frontal image uh, of what I believe is, <clears throat> is Jesus. By the way, the Bible says that uh, Joseph Arimathea provided the cloth. We do know that the weave of that cloth is specific to the area of Jerusalem and goes back to the first century A.D., but only wealthy people would be able to afford it. And Joseph Arimathea was wealthy. But when Jesus, when life reentered the body of Jesus and was transformed so that his mortal body put on immortality, okay, the chemical exchange in the body, you have radioactive material emanating from the body going up and going down, and it left his image, almost an x-ray image on the cloth. By the way, that's not the shroud, okay? The shroud looks very unimpressive. That's a photographic negative of the shroud, and that's where all the details are. Now, they claim in 1988... They claimed the radiocarbon date, a portion of it, down about here on the cloth, uh, to 1260 to 1320 A.D. You need to look at Robert Rucker, a good friend of mine, speaks around the country, and he's a retired uh, nuclear engineer, and he has come up. You see, you can't, if we can't, we don't have the technology. You'd need something like nuclear, the power of a nuclear explosion in such a twinkling of an eye that it doesn't disintegrate the cloth and disturbs nothing around it. We do not have the technology to reproduce that. When you go online and you find people claiming that they've reproduced the shroud, they might have reproduced three or four factors, three or four aspects. You need to reproduce about 50 of them, okay? We don't have the technology to do that. We're not advanced scientifically enough to reproduce that image. But Robert Rucker has a theory of the formation of the shroud. Once you have a theory of the formation of the shroud, you can then do the math and find out what kind of chemical exchanges that would have on the cloth. And so he factors all of that in. What you have is 
other molecules being turned into carbon-14 molecules so that if you were to carbon date, center mass, the chest, you would probably get a date. Robert Rucker um, um, factors that out, and uh, you'd probably get a uh, date of 9500 AD. Okay? Now, we don't have time to get into a discussion of the trout. You could speak for hours on that. I'd recommend you go to Robert Rucker's site. Um, uh, but even non-believers have acknowledged that the shroud is authentic. And so we may have empirical evidence of the shroud of Turin. The recent interest in the shroud goes back to 1898 when an Italian photographer, Secondo Pia, took the first photographs of the shroud. And then he went into the dark room and looked at the photographic negatives where all the details are, and it freaked him out. About 85% of what we know about crucifixion, we learn from studying the Shroud of Turin, getting forensic scientists to examine life-size photographic negatives of the Shroud. And, uh, but beyond that, naturalistic theories, uh, alternative explanations have all feel, failed. The swoon theory fails because Jesus was dead. Uh, his, his side being pierced to blood and water proves that he was already dead before he was taken down from the cross. The stolen body theory fails. The apostles died martyrs' deaths. The hallucination theory fails. Jesus appeared to groups, and it's easy to talk people out of hallucinations. And the wrong tomb theory fails because if they went to the wrong tomb, it doesn't explain the appearances. Uh, also, if the apostles went to the wrong tomb, the Jewish religious leaders had the means and the motive to search every tomb in the Jerusalem area and produce the rotting corpse of Christ if there was one, but they failed. So it's kind of, I kind of feel sorry for these guys, but the only way to disprove the resurrection is to produce the body. It's 2,000 years too late. You guys lost. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. So the accounts, the options here, the accounts were not legends that take decades, sometimes centuries to develop. The accounts were not legends. They go back to eyewitnesses. And these eyewitnesses, the apostles, were not lying. Men don't die for what they know to be a hoax. They were not deceived. Uh, they didn't see hallucinations. They saw Jesus in groups. The only alternative is that the apostles told the truth Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, and once again, love broke through. So in conclusion, uh, Jesus bodily rose from the dead. He is therefore God, Savior, and Messiah. Now, if you came here and you weren't believing, if you're believing now, if you're willing to trust in Jesus for salvation, when Pastor John comes up to lead us in the Lord's Supper, we invite you, if you're a true believer, if you're trusting in Jesus for salvation, whether you've been trusting in him for 20 years, one year, or 10 minutes, if you trust in Jesus, you're my brother. You're my sister. But in conclusion, the historical evidence shows Jesus bodily rose from the dead. He is therefore God, Savior, and Messiah. He has conquered death, and therefore life has meaning. And then Paul tells us, because Jesus rose from the dead, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, after arguing that Jesus rose from the dead, and therefore all believers will rise from the dead, 
He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our work for God's kingdom is not in vain. And it's going to get hot in the kitchen, brothers and sisters. We got a government that doesn't love us anymore, and they certainly certainly don't love Jesus. And so we might think, you know what, I'm going to stop working for God's kingdom because I don't want to get in trouble. I'm going to stop sharing Jesus because I don't want to get in trouble. Well, our work for God's kingdom is not in vain because Jesus conquered the grave and defeated death because in Jesus, love broke through. And the work we do for God's kingdom is not in vain. Some of you are burning out. You've been serving God. You've been given 100%, and you're just feeling weak. But don't grow weary in doing good. The work that you do, even when nobody's watching, the triune God is watching, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true God. You feel like throwing in the towel. You feel weak. You feel like giving up. But the work you do in God's kingdom is not in vain. Why not? Because Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. You know, when a football team wins the Super Bowl, they return to their hometown for a celebration and a parade. But we never look at the parade a few days later and say, wow, look, they're winning the Super Bowl. No, it was already won. Okay? It was won days before. When a football team wins the Super Bowl, later on they return to their hometown for a celebration and a parade. What I'm, what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, I don't care if the powerful people of this world want to step on us with a boot and crush us because of our faith in Christ. I don't care if they want to kill us and rid the world of Christians. Okay? We do not have to wait for Christ's victory. What the resurrection tells us is that Jesus already won. Okay? Now, we're, we're just waiting for the parade. Okay? Jesus is going to return to planet Earth, and he's going to get his victory parade. But that's not when he wins. He already won 2,000 years ago when the tomb was found empty and he appeared alive to his followers and even to some skeptics who then became his followers. Jesus already won. We're just waiting for the parade. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Because we thank you, you are God the Son. And despite our sin and man's greatest enemy, death, it has now been defeated. Come, Lord Jesus, come, because your love broke through. And so John, Pastor John is going to come, us, come up and lead us in the Lord's Supper.